Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. And whatever time it happens to be. All right, we are starting in verse 13, chapter 2 of Matthew. As you will recall, up to this point, we covered the story of the wise men, the real story of the wise men, and how they showed up in Israel in force. And the reason that they showed up in Israel in force is because they were coming from the Parthian Empire, and the Parthian Empire was, in fact, a rival for world power of the Roman Empire. And uh, Judea was a occupied Roman territory. And the wise men came and they told Herod, Herod the Great. Now, Herod was a real jerk. And he had committed multiple atrocities in order to maintain power. He was a political appointee of Caesar. He was not himself a Jew. So he was a political appointee as king over Israel by Herod, or I'm sorry, by Caesar. And in order to maintain power, he went out of his way. He was ruthless. He killed his own family in order to maintain power. So when he, when the uh, wise men came to him and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That was an actual political dig at Herod saying the actual king who is an actual Jew has been born according to the prophecies. Where is he? Because, of course, they figured, you know, if we know about it, then obviously the Jews should know about it. But this is the interesting thing about the way that God works. He does not work in the manner that human beings expect. As a matter of fact, a lot of times he works in a different way. And this particular way that he worked, the birth of Christ to a nobody little girl and some carpenter guy out of the backwoods of Israel was a covert insertion. Because just imagine if Christ had appeared, had been born in a manner that the Jews expected. Well, there would be, there would be huge fanfare. He would have been born to a, a very uh, wealthy, prominent family, probably of Pharisees, um, and, and, and a lot of pomp and circumstance. And if that had happened, it would have been extraordinarily easy for Herod to locate him and kill him. But that's not what happened. He came from uh, a little girl, little probably 13, 15-year-old little girl, and which was typical for marriage at the time, by the way. Um, and again, some, some carpenter out of podunk 
nowhere Israel and was actually born in this teeny tiny little town that, you know, nobody really knew that much about. Uh, you know, it might have had a little, you know, a historical poster somewhere that said, you know, David lived here or something like that. But uh, estimates are that the actual population of Bethlehem itself was about a thousand people. That ain't much. So this was a covert insertion, and it was a covert insertion for a reason, because God knew. God knew that Satan was looking for the actual Messiah to be born, because Satan knew something about God that most human beings still don't appreciate, and that is, if God says he's going to do something, and especially if he gives you a timeline, he's going to do it. It's going to happen. That's one of the things about the Bible that I love, is that every single, every single prophecy in the Bible has come true, a hundred percent. Every single one has come true up to now. Now, if I had a friend who was capable of predicting every single sports event, every single time, a hundred percent up to now, I'd believe him. And so far, nobody has been able to disprove the Bible. They have gone out of their way to try. But nobody has been able to disprove the Bible. As a matter of fact, a lot of people who have tried have ended up becoming Christians. And that's because it's true. Now, back to the story. We know that Herod told the wise men, Hey, uh, when you do find him, why don't you come back to me and tell me about it so that I can come kill him? I mean, <clears throat> worship him. Yeah. But they were warned in a dream not to tell Herod. And so they left by a different route. Okay. And Herod, uh, I don't know, for me, if it was me and I was Herod, I might have tried to send somebody with him or have somebody tail him, something like that, to keep an eye on him, just to find out where. Not even mention, you know, hey, come back to me and tell me what's going on so that I can find it. If it was me, I would have sent somebody to follow him. But Herod didn't do that. So apparently Herod might not have been overly bright, although he was quite vicious. Okay, verse 13. Now, when they had gone, that's the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is the second time an angel of the Lord has appeared to Joseph. That tells you how important this covert insertion was. That's two direct communications, or indirect communications, I'm sorry, two communications from God regarding this situation. <clears throat> The angel said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. The phrasing of this is very interesting. Take the child and his mother is very interesting. Normally, Normally, it would the, the parent 
would take precedence of importance. But the fact that the angel put Jesus first in that statement is indicative of how important Jesus is in this particular situation. Verse 14, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night. So this is something that happens like immediately. And and note too, you know, uh, how the angel says, get up. This is not one of those things like, hey, uh, tomorrow go ahead and pack your bags, you're taking a vacation to Egypt. This is one of those things where right now, get up. Like you've got Navy SEALs show up at your door and they're here to rescue you and they're like, get up, get your stuff and get moving right now. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother. And again, you see the precedence of Jesus right here. While it was still night and left for Egypt, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay. Let's see. He remained there until the death of Herod. Yes, no, that's not what I wanted to cover. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. This would not have been overly difficult because the border of Egypt was 75 miles away from Bethlehem. The nearest town was about 150 miles, but just getting into Egypt would be getting out of Herod's reach from a political standpoint. And so he remained there until the death of Herod. The death of Herod was not pretty. It was not pretty, folks. He died consumed by worms. This is confirmed by the... uh, Uh, historian Josephus. And what's interesting was his uh, grandson, Herod Agrippa, who took over for him, uh, died in the same manner. Uh, And here, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Once again, Matthew is pointing to the prophets to show uh, how Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. Now, this particular prophecy is a a typological prophecy. In other words, throughout the Bible, there are harmonies, things that occur, people that show up that are types of situations that refer to Christ, okay? Um, The way that Joseph saved his family, it was a a Christ type. The way that Moses stood in the gap between God's wrath and the Israelite people was a Christ type. So these are called typological types. Prophecies, And in this particular case, we're looking at Hosea 11.1. And when Hosea 11.1 talks about, out of Egypt I called my son, he is referring back to where the Israelites 
came out of Egypt, out of slavery from Egypt, and he's referring to Israel as God's adopted son. This is not unusual phraseology for that particular type of, uh, for Eastern culture. And so Hosea 11.1 1 is directly referring to the, uh, uh, to the, to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. But that is a typological reference itself to the entrance to Egypt and exit from Egypt of Jesus. He is God's actual son, the Messiah. He is exiting Israel to avoid an extremely lethal, dangerous situation like Jacob's family did way back in Joseph's time. And then he comes back to Israel when that danger is uh, no longer present. And there's a reason that he did this, of course, and we see this in verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he, came, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were born in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted, because they were no more. This guy Herod was a bad, bad dude. He was a seriously bad dude. So he determined, from what the Magi said when the star arrived, that it was two years ago. And so he, he determined, okay, they're in Bethlehem. We know that because that's what my advisors told me. But we didn't find out exactly who the kid was. But that's okay because I'm Herod. So we just go to Bethlehem and kill all the male children who are two years and under. Now, it might have been less than two years, but he might have been being safe. You know, maybe they didn't notice. So let's just be, maybe it was a year. Maybe it was six months. We don't know. But Herod might have been just, you know, just covering his bets and saying, eh, two years and under, that, that'll be safe. Then we're sure. We'll be sure to get them all. Now, in a town of a thousand people, that's not going to actually be uh, a lot of kids compared to a lot of the other stuff that Herod had done, this really isn't a, a big deal. Uh, and and so it's it's it doesn't show up in his particular history. And this is a criticism of a lot of folks. Well, this didn't show up in historical uh, events. Uh, you know, we don't have any extra biblical uh, confirmation of this. So it must not have happened. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that we don't have extra biblical confirmation for yet. You know, the the whole thing of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
they they thought, oh well, you know, that's a lot of people, a lot of critics. That's just a uh, that's just a a myth, you know, a myth to talk about uh, how you should follow God and stuff like that. But it didn't really happen. Well, guess what, folks? We actually have the location of the city. It's it's being archaeologically uh, uh, explored right now. The actual location of Sodom and Gomorrah. They found it. And the, the archaeologists there are 100% sure. And, and the guy, the archaeologist who, who was uh, interviewed and who actually did the discovery, um, was saying, you know, normally at sites we're like 75%, 80%. He said, we're 100% sure that this is Sodom. So the, the great, another great thing I love about the Bible is it's constantly being confirmed historically and archaeologically. And just because we don't have, like, Josephus didn't write anything about the slaughter at Bethlehem, you're looking at maybe 12 to 16 kids, you know, in a town of a thousand. And again, Bethlehem is this tiny little podunk town compared to all the other stuff that Herod did that was politically significant. This was a nothing burger. So I'm sure Josephus, even if he knew about it, which he might not have known about it, because it was so insignificant, you know, he probably wouldn't have written about it. All right, back to the story. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother. Once again, we see the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, again, child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This again is another covert insertion. Galilee, Nazareth, was backwoods podunk nowhere. Definitely not a place that one would expect to find a Messiah. As a matter of fact, uh, in one of the Gospels, uh, I can recall, and I don't remember which one, but at one point, um, when the disciples, uh, one, one of the disciples comes to another one to kind of, you know, recruit him, and, and he says, hey, come here, I found the Messiah. I found the Messiah. It's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And the the other disciple says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, so Nazareth had just this backwoods, podunk, nothing reputation at the time. The part that sticks out to me most about this story from verses 13 to 23 is the heart 
that Joseph has for God. In another gospel, we're going to see the heart that Mary has. When Gabriel appears to her and tells her that she is going to be made pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And her response, just the way that she handles it, is amazing. It proves what an amazing woman she was and what a heart for God that she had. And, and like the two things that stick out to me most about that story is when the angel arrives, typically throughout all of the biblical stories of when angels show up to human beings, the first thing the angels have to say is, fear not. But Gabriel didn't have to say that to her. He appeared to her, and she was just accepting of the situation. That's a, that's a brave little girl. And then he tells her what's going to happen. And she knows full well, as a young Jewish girl, she knows full well the type of cultural oppression that is going to come down on her, the stigma that is going to be on her for her entire life for getting pregnant out of wedlock. She knows, and she accepts it without just let it be done unto me as you have said. That's what she says. Joseph here has a heart for God. He obeys. When, when, God, uh, when the angel of the Lord shows up to him and tells him, hey, don't put her away, she is carrying the Son of God. He accepts it. He also understands the kind of cultural pressure that is going to be on him and the stigma that is going to be on his wife. He gets that. It would be so much easier for him to have just quietly put her away, quietly given her a divorce, and that would have been it. Divorce, you say? You don't understand? They weren't married at the time? Well, that's true. However, once you are betrothed, and a betrothal can last for a year or more in this culture, once you are betrothed, it is a legal situation. Even though you're not married and you cannot do married stuff, you are still legally bound to each other. And to break a betrothal requires a writ of divorce, according to the law at the time. So, yes, he could have quietly divorced her, put her away, and just kind of, you know, let what happens happen. But he didn't. He obeyed without thought. Same thing when the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, hey, get up, you got to get out of here and go to Egypt. It's a 150-mile hike at night to the nearest town. But he gets up and he goes. Boom. Both parents of Christ had hearts for God. And this is 
this is a crux of a lot of what's going on right now in our society, in the West. You look at the situation with Cain and Abel. Go back to Cain and Abel. There was nothing wrong, technically, with the offering that Cain gave of the fruits of his labor. That story is not to suggest that Cain, being a farmer and giving offering up the fruits of his labor, of the ground, is inferior in any way to Abel giving the first fruits of his flock. Okay? It's not to put down farmers versus uh, ranchers or shepherds. The main difference between the two is the attitude, the heart behind it. And Abel's heart was genuinely contrite towards God. It was a friendship offering. It was like, look, I know I'm not worthy. Here is my offering to you, my creator. Okay? At this time, there was still a really close communicative relationship between humans and God. And we also see this because Cain was all upset that, you know, God didn't accept my offering. And God actually tells him directly, tells him, look, what are you upset about? If you had done rightly, everything would be cool. But you're not doing rightly. You're doing wrongly. See, Abel's heart, or I'm sorry, Cain's heart, was not with God. Cain was doing his own thing. He, he didn't think that he needed to, to present a friendship offering. And so his heart wasn't with God. And we're going to see next in chapter 3, and also later, the idea of repentance, how John the Baptist is coming forth and he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. The very first word that Jesus uttered in his uh, ministry, repent. What is repentance? Repentance literally means turning around, changing direction. Okay? Repentance does not mean you must start being perfect right now. In order for you to be a Christian, you must start being perfect right now. You must stop all sin, no sinning. You must stop. That's not what it means. Because that's impossible. If we could stop sinning, just, you know, decide, well, I've been sinning for a while, but, you know, I think it's bad now, so I'm just going to stop. Because they said repent, so I'm just going to stop doing it. You can't do that. 
That's not possible, despite the fact that there are some Christian, so-called Christian denominations out there that say that you can. You can't. You cannot. Sin is part of our flesh. It is part of what we do, and that's something that we'll see uh, Jesus talk about later in the Sermon on the Mount. It is inside of us. It is part of us. The sin of Adam has become part of our DNA, if you will. Part of our spiritual DNA. And so we sin. The difference is there are those who revel in their sin. There are those who believe that by their very existence, they deserve to be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, with or to whomever they want. They deserve it. They are worthy of doing whatever they want. Even though God says they can't. Well, God's just this cosmic killjoy and he just doesn't want me to have fun. Well, I'm going to do whatever I want. And, and their heart is not directed towards God. It is directed towards themselves. I posted something on Facebook yesterday. Not Facebook, I'm sorry. I'm not on Facebook. posted something on Twitter yesterday that said, any, any philosophy that has I at the center of it is evil. If it's all about you, if your philosophy is all about you, it's evil. It's not. It's not bad. It's. It's not. It's not such a good idea. You know, suggestions. No, it's not. No, it's. It's evil, and it will lead to evil ultimately. Any philosophy that is God-centered, the philosophy that is God-centered, the way that is God-centered, that is not evil. If it's if it's God-centered, it can't be evil. And that's what the repentance that they're talking about is. Turning your heart to God, knowing that you're a sinner. Wanting to not be a sinner. Knowing that, that your urges, your primal urges, your carnal urges are wrong. And wanting to be free of sin. And having your heart centered on Christ, that is what repentance is. And, and if you are like that, then Jesus is faithful to work in your life through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will slowly, usually slowly, sometimes quickly, change your life and mold you into the image of God's Son on earth, and you will become more Christ-like as time goes on. But that's what repentance is. That's what stands out to me about Joseph and Mary, is their hearts being directed towards God. They had hearts for God. And this is why God chose them, because he knew. 
He knew what kind of people they were. And so he chose them. Hmm, sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? When the Bible talks about how God knew us before the foundations of the earth, God chose us. Because he knew our hearts were going to be turned towards him. This is not predestination, folks. And a lot of people ask me, do you believe in predestination or free will? And I say, yes. God knew what kind of people they were. And God knows who has a heart for him or who could potentially have a heart for him. Even though they might not now, they may still repent, which is why God sent people like John the Baptist. And it's why God preached and Jesus preached repentance. Note, nowhere in the Bible will you ever find God or Jesus or any of their representatives saying, eh, do whatever the heck you want. It's okay. God loves you. God is love. So God loves you. So do whatever you want. Uh, that's not the way it works. See, God is perfect love. And you can't have perfect love without perfect justice. And it's justice that everybody has a problem with. Unless your heart is turned towards God. All right, folks, that's where I'm going to leave this particular sermon. Thank you for listening. If you like this, please share this out there to your family and your friends. You can catch my videos on political and cultural and pop culture nerd type stuff, actually, uh, on, uh, let's see, odyssey.com, O-D-Y-S-E-E.com, bitshoot.com, and rumble.com. And... The podcast is available wherever you can get podcasts. It's the Doc Bryant podcast, or the Doc Bryant show. I'm sorry, Doc Bryant show. And that's available wherever you can get podcasts, including Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and Amazon. Except Apple. I'm not on Apple, and I'm not on YouTube. So thanks once again for listening, and I will talk to you all later.